0: Okay, this uh, chapter is going to be about Korea in the 19th century. Mark Peterson's summary is a pretty good one. He says, The final years of Korea's Joseon dynasty present themselves as a tragic drama with a clarity that is unusual in history. Like its East Asian neighbors, China and Japan, Korea experienced great turmoil in the 19th century. The outcomes were quite different, however. Despite tremendous and often bloody chaos at all levels of society, bruising exploitation by the Western powers, and even a humiliating defeat by Japan in 1895, at the end of the 19th century China remained independent, and the seeds of a revolution that would overthrow the Manchu dynasty and inaugurate a new modern republic had already been sown. Japan, as we'll talk about in the next chapter, emerged as not only a formidable local regional power in east asia but also a player on the world stage rather than succumbing to the combination of internal and external pressures that to varying degrees buffeted all three of east asia's states japan had with relative ease and speed embarked upon a successful modernization come westernization campaign this resulted in among many other things that war with china in other words the sino-japanese war of 1894 to 1895. Despite its name, however, this was a war in and about the future of the Korean peninsula. And that future was for at least a time, one as a Japanese colony. When it came to the challenges of the 19th century, the Chosun dynasty that had ruled Korea since the 14th century displayed remarkable tenacity and durability over those long years, but was found wanting on nearly every front in the late 19th century. The results for Korea were catastrophic. The gross overconfidence of 12 centuries of political unity and a social and political system that had evolved but not drastically changed in more than a millennium was shattered and the country with it. At the risk of skipping ahead a little bit chronologically, it makes, I think, the most sense to begin considering Korea's turbulent 19th century from the perspective of foreign affairs. Geopolitically, the peninsula was located at the intersection of the ambitions of the region's great powers, old and new. So, Russia encroached from the north, China from the west, Japan from the east, and the Atlantic powers, the French, the British, the Americans, etc. by sea. The undying mantra of real estate is location, location, location. Uh, Donald Trump's pronouncements about uh, North Korea's great beaches and their potential as future development projects notwithstanding, location became a great burden for Korea as the world crushed in upon the peninsula in the 19th century. The realm of international politics around this time was increasingly fraught. Though an isolationist policy is more famously associated with Japan, Joseon Korea's nickname, the Hermit Kingdom, was equally or perhaps even more apt. Korea did maintain relations with Japan and with China, uh, but only with Japan and China during this time. In the 1830s and 1840s, however, Western ships began plying the waters off the peninsula, demanding trade and other rights, and challenging the limits of isolationism in a world of expanding, expanding empires and unprecedented mobility. As Peterson wrote, Korea's situation was especially complex since it, not only had to deal with the forces of the West—Britain, France, the United States, and especially Russia—but also with its two traditional East Asian neighbors—China, which was determined to consolidate control or influence over its periphery, and a rapidly modernizing expansionist Japan. Korea's international troubles began in earnest in 1832, when a British East India company vessel was refused the right to engage in commerce. The process was repeated in escalating fashion by a British warship in 1845, then three French warships the following year, and then by two armed Russian ships in 1854. Simultaneously, many of Korea's ruling classes were kept abreast of the disastrous clashes between China and these same Westerners, and then, in the same year as Korea's encounter with those Russian warships, the quote unquote opening of Japan by the United States. These building tensions burst to the surface in 1866 for Korea. First, in August of that year, the American merchant ship General Sherman petitioned for trade rights at the provincial capital of Pyongyang. There is some controversy about what happened. One report says the Americans held hostage the Korean official who came to negotiate with them and who agreed to provide them with food for their onward voyage. There's also a question about whether the ship was truly a commercial ship. It had been a gunship and still had reinforced armor on its sides. Uh, And on a personal note here, the naming General Sherman is more than a little suspicious. Anyway, uh, what happened next is fairly straightforward. Ignoring orders to leave, the crew fired upon a hostile crowd and burned nearby boats. When the ship grounded, uh, think the Ever Given, uh, it was burned and its crew executed. Think not the Ever Given. Uh, and this incident apparently was celebrated in uh, North Korea. is now, excuse me, celebrated in North Korea as the beginning of the Korean people's resistance to American imperialism. Ailing Chosun was also relatively successful in beating off the American punitive force that arrived in 1871 uh, to take revenge for the General Sherman incident. So a fleet of five ships carrying uh, 1,200 troops sailed against Korea in response. When fired upon, the U.S. ships destroyed the Korean shore batteries and attacked the island of Kanghua, a strategic, fortified location west of Seoul, north of Incheon. Despite this, the Koreans refused to discuss trade, and the Americans withdrew. It was a moral victory, at least. The Koreans erected signs proclaiming, quote, Western barbarians invade our land. If we do not fight, we must then appease them. To urge appeasement is to betray the nation. Korea's troubles with the West were not limited to maritime skirmishes over trading rights. In 1866, for instance, wary of French-backed Russian attempts to expand the Choson territories in the north, the the regent, the Teewongam, outlawed Catholicism. The elites of Choson's Confucian orthodoxy already mistrusted and generally looked down upon the Western barbarians and indeed the world beyond the traditional Sinosphere. Christianity, uh, Catholicism to be precise, which had made remarkable, which has Made remarkable inroads in 18th century Korea, had been banned once as a potentially destabilizing force uh, toward the end of the century in 1785. In 1800, this proscription was escalated to outright persecution. Renewed persecution in the mid century saw 8,000 Catholics executed and thousands more imprisoned between 1866 and 1872. It also brought another French punitive mission. The French sent seven ships to, cheat, to seize Kanwha and demand punishment of those who had been involved in the murders. Despite some pillaging on the island and further French attempts to push the issue with thrusts into other areas of Korea, this incident also ended in a moral victory for Korea and served as further evidence that isolation was a good policy inasmuch as it seemed to shield Choson from obviously bad, barbaric outsiders. As with the uh, general... Sherman incident and its uh, aftermath, this opinion was certainly not changed by a uh, German attempt to steal the body of the Taewongun's father from its crypt and hold it for ransom just two years later. As Jim Kim put it, given the importance of filial piety in Chosun's society, a more insulting and barbaric action could not be found. And of course, that was the point. An interesting sidebar to all this is that one of the items pillaged by the French Kanghwa was later revealed to be one volume of a longer Buddhist text. Uh, and this text was extraordinary because it's the only extant copy of any of the books printed with the first set of metal movable type fonts made in history. All other copies of that text and other texts printed at the time have apparently been destroyed. So, for those keeping track, the Korean use of movable movable type predates Gutenberg's invention of movable type in the West by 200 years. That book, the one stolen, uh, is still held by the French National Library. In retrospect, more than one scholar has opined that it might have been better for Joseon to assent to U.S. and French advances, if only because it might have left Korea less vulnerable to Japanese predation in the following decades. Uh, I'm not sure that I entirely shared that opinion, but I see where they're coming from. Japan was the first nation to pressure Chosun to reconsider its isolationist policy. Westerners had not yet perceived Chosun as an important trading and diplomatic partner, whereas the Japanese saw it as a prime area for domination and expansion. We are going to return to this uh, Japan-Korea relationship and to its denouement after examining domestic politics and society in the mid to late 19th century. I want to turn first, though, to uh, internal affairs. As noted, Christianity began to filter into Korea in earnest in the 18th century. By 1900, uh, despite periodic crackdowns, uh, some of which I've alluded to already, the number of Korean converts may have reached as much as 30,000. On the other hand, as in Japan, for example, the destabilizing political influence, uh, influence of Christianity Uh, because it is a religion that demands sole loyalty and complete obedience to a faraway god represented by an independent church on earth, Uh, and so primarily the concern is Catholicism, Um, this made Korean elites nervous. And it didn't help that most of those attracted to Catholicism were often the same people who had been excluded from political and economic power. In Japan, it was not the Jesuits, but the Franciscans who were problematic and for the same reasons. Although at first Catholicism attracted young bond adherents, later converts tended to come from the lower social classes, the uneducated rather than the educated, the poor rather than the better off, and women rather than men. Many were attracted by Christianity's emphasis on equality and egalitarianism under God. Elites, not surprisingly, saw things differently. The Catholic ban on ancestor worship was also deeply troubling for establishment uh, figures and the system that supported them. In 1788, two high officials asked the Choson king to ban Western books. He complied, ordering the destruction of all Christian books. As mentioned earlier, 1800 saw a suppression of Catholicism that included the execution and banishment of hundreds of Korean Christians. An important reactionary offshoot of elite antagonism toward Christianity was the Tonghak, or Eastern Learning Movement. Founded by an idealistic frustrated Yangban in the 1860s, Tonghak was a reaction against the introduction of alien Catholic doctrines. To devise a new faith opposing Christianity, uh, this frustrated Yangban not only adopted the best precepts of Confucianism, Buddhism, and Taoism, but accepted some elements of Catholicism, such as congregational worship. He also embraced features of Korea's native shamanistic practices, especially the belief in amulets and incantations. In many ways, the Eastern learning was symptomatic of the melange of dynastic decay and foreign pressures that characterized mid-19th century Korea overall, or, as Michael Seth put it, a response to the unsettling new ideas and developments taking place in and around Korea during this period. In this, at least, the movement resembled the Boxer Rebellion, or the roughly contemporary Temping Heavenly Kingdom in China, So, in other words, it was a kind of desperate millenarianism with ultimately destructive consequences. Tonghak was less interested in the ontological questions that occupy many religions. It was more concerned with social reform, purging corrupt officials and foreign influences. It was both populist and xenophobic. Again, the parallels with contemporary China are worth considering. As Peterson observed of the Eastern learning, Tonghak became the focus of a peasant uprising in 1894 the uprising, known as the Tonghak Rebellion, had as one of its aims the end of foreign influence. Ironically, it had the opposite result. It led to war between the Korean—excuse uh, me—between the Chinese and Japanese on Korean soil, and did a great deal to hasten the loss of Korean sovereignty. But of course, we're jumping ahead a little bit there again we need to first look back at the domestic political and social conditions in which these international incidents took place, and in which the Tonghak cult arose. To do that, it's helpful first to think about changes to the structure of rule in 19th century Korea. King Chongzhou died in 1800, a year after the Chenlong Emperor in China. It's easy to attach a certain symbolism to both of these deaths, coming as they did at the dawn of the imperialist century. Of course, these dates are arbitrary and Gregorian, but at least the proximity of Chongzhou and Chenlong's deaths is striking. In any case, Chongzhou's heir was 11 years old. This began the era of consort rule, essentially regency. Uh, Again, you can think about uh, the situation in China. uh, Toward the end of the Qing dynasty. Under the consort families, Korea in the early 19th century uh, grappled with the consequences of social change and natural disasters social dislocations, new diseases such as cholera, flooding and drought, uh, which were exacerbated by deforestation. Uh, Because, by the way, pre-modern and uh, East Asian societies were not the ecological paradises some would have us believe, uh, brought an end to the 18th century population increase. Instead, the population dropped to around 12.4 million by 1816 and then fluctuated between 12.2 and 12.7 million until around 1876, in contrast to the population increases seen during the same period in China and Japan. But lest it be thought that these royal in-laws, the Andong Kim oligarchs, were valiantly and selflessly struggling for the benefit of society, Jim Wong Kim reminds us that their usurpation of power left the nation in complete administrative upheaval, and the consequent suffering fell on the soldiers of the general populace especially the impoverished peasantry. And even as conditions in the country rapidly deteriorated, the central government paid scarce attention to the people's welfare. The government continued to collect taxes without providing a social safety net that would protect the peasantry in times of bad harvest, for instance. Such poor administration is why, over the course of the 19th century, the government had to deal with a series of rebellions, culminating with the 1894 Tonghak Rebellion. Now, it's true that natural disasters exacerbated Korea's troubles, but they were not the sole cause. One notable positive was that the government took measures to improve the lot of slaves. In 1801, the Dowager Regent manumitted most of the 67,000 official slaves while retaining those slaves working in local offices. This measure recognized what had already happened. Hereditary slavery of several million private slaves remained until 1886, but slavery itself was abolished in in 1894. Nevertheless, overall, peasant life was grinding poverty itself. Scholars disagree over the extent of economic development in 19th century Korea. It appears that many of the positive developments of the time, uh, excuse me, of the previous century were reversed. Many peasants struggled to survive. Population decline, rebellions, reports of famines generally. All of these things indicate that life got harder for commoners. One of the most enduring survival strategies was to form voluntary mutual assistance associations, some of which are still functioning in contemporary Korea. These associations, which had analogs in Japan, for example, provided a mechanism for people to pool their funds and then take turns using that capital as needed for survival, investment, development, etc. The economy was never very good in the 19th century. Tenant farmers and farmers of small plots generally led a precarious existence. As in China, the Colombian Exchange provided new crops, though. Peasants planted these New World crops in new marginal fields previously unsuitable for agriculture. The sweet potato arrived via Japan in 1763. The white potato through China in 1840 or so. One 19th century uh, addition to the diet was Chinese cabbage. Along with New World hot peppers that came to Korea via uh, Hideyoshi's invasion, this Napa cabbage became a favorite for kimchi. Regardless, even new crops were not enough to do more than blunt the impact of social and natural disasters. Rebellions, of which there were many, are indicators of social unrest in the 19th century. Peasants and discontented Yangban increasingly organized and led results of various revolts of various scales. 1862, for example, was a particularly robust year for rebellion. That spring saw two major incidents. First, in March, a group of peasants led by a former Yangban, all capped in white to demonstrate their unity, uh, killed local officials and razed government buildings. The following month, apparently inspired by this incident, rebels rose up in dozens of areas around Chosun. They were eventually put down by government troops, but to appease popular sentiment, some measures were taken to punish the local officials, whose corruption and exploitive practices had been the causes of these disturbances. Overall, these rebellions were less about political revolution than they were about vengeance. Anger and violence were mainly aimed at government officials, as rioting peasants killed government functionaries and burned official buildings. Once their thirst for vengeance had been slaked, the uprisings tended to die down. Palliative measures like those taken by the government in 1862 were enough to placate many. So, Two years later, in 1864, a new political era was inaugurated when King Kojong ascended the Cholson throne. He was 12. His father assumed the title of Tewongun and ruled as regent for a decade before being displaced by the other main faction in the choson court. Uh, and, and that faction was the faction of the king's bride, Queen Min. Even after the Taewongun was forced to relinquish his grasp on power in 1873, he and the queen's family engaged in a protracted power struggle for the rest of the century, each turning to different internal and external allies, and repeating the debilitating factionalism that had early characterized the Yangban. Overall, Korean political reforms, undertaken after the Opium Wars disrupted the traditional socio-political order of East Asia, were piecemeal, and they fell fall short of the revolution it would have taken to see real change. It wasn't until after 1860 when China gave Russia a lease on the Yangban Peninsula, contiguous to Korea, that Korea began to react. And even then, it could be argued that the policies were, initially at least, inward-looking, isolationist, short-sighted. Still, in his first decade, the Taewongun, the regent, brought down an iron fist on Korean domestic problems, though not always successfully. His signature policies included destroying the foundations of Yangban's strength, restoring the might of the monarchy, increasing tax revenues while spreading the burden more equitably, including to the Yangban. His crackdowns on the Yangban, whose exemptions from taxes and corvée had expanded to such an extent that they undermined the entire national economy, met with some initial successes, but ultimately led to his ouster by the Queen's faction, which allied with the Yangban and struck back. Current scholarly evaluations of this decade of uh, power for the regent are mixed. For example, While his persecution of Catholics is mostly frowned upon, and his attempt to shut down private Yangban academies and tax the Confucian aristocracy are genuinely smiled upon, uh, even if the consequence was the king's faction versus queen's faction schism of the 1870s onward, his project to rebuild the main palace in Seoul in order to bolster the monarchy's authority is more controversial. Peterson, for example, points out that when the Taewongun started running out of money to pay the workers, he printed paper money without support and its use set off a spiral of inflation that damaged the economy for years after. On the other hand, Kim is more forgiving. Despite some economic confusion, he argues, overall the internal reforms carried out by the strong-willed taewong contributed considerably to terminating the oligarchical royal in-law government, to establishing a strong monarchy, increasing state revenues, and enhancing defense capabilities. His reform measures garnered popular support and built national strength. Similarly, while many peasants escaped from permanent indebtedness with cancellation of past unrecoverable loans in the official grain loan program, and the Taewongun shifted the administration of grain loans from corrupt district magistrates and their clerks to local elders, even these reforms were less radical than they seemed, because the land survey did not cover the whole country, and village yangban had already been included among villagers to pay the combined tax. Anyway. The Tewangun's turn at the helm of the ship of state was brief but momentous, and it was cut short in 1873 by palace intrigue and entrenched interests. He miscalculated in his selection of a queen for his son, for Kojong, and the orphan he thought had no political connections or savvy quickly proved him wrong by allying with all of his enemies and maneuvering her family members into key positions at court. When Queen Min finally forced her father-in-law from power and got Kojong to rule in his own name in late 1873, the young king took a more open policy toward the outside world. The relative failures of China and the relative successes of Japan were in part responsible for convincing the king and his coterie of young advisors that Korea's previous seclusion policy was untenable. And just a few years later, though, that same new policy would be tested by Japan itself. In 1868, Japan added to the pressure on Korea from abroad, When the new government sent a note in the Meiji Emperor's name to the King of Korea asking for a uh, a treaty of trade and amity, the taewon refused to accept the note. His grounds were that there was only one legitimate emperor, the Emperor of the Qing Dynasty. This political slight was cited by angry Japanese proponents of an invasion of Korea in 1873. In the end, this was delayed by more politically savvy politicians, who saw the need for Japan to gain strength and also to find an excuse more plausible and defensible in the terms of a modern international world order dominated by the West. We're going to talk about the complicated internal workings of the the Japan side of this incident in a future lecture, but I want to make it clear here that despite the contentions of some Korean nationalists, there was emphatically no concerted, long-term, devious plan to colonize Korea that began at this stage. If anything, as Peterson argues, given that Japan was most concerned that Korea would fall under Chinese or Russian control and that the peninsula itself would become a staging ground for an invasion or at least threat of one of Japan itself. When Japan's leaders and representatives spoke of the need for a strong, modern, independent Korea, that was not mere rhetoric to dress up aggressive plans. At least at times, the Japanese were genuinely interested in modernizing Korea, including its armed forces. If Korea could take the path that Japan had taken, and do it quickly, then Japan need not worry about the dagger aimed at its heart, as one European advisor had memorably described Korea. For now, though, it's enough to know that when Japan created an excuse for hostile action by sending a survey ship up the Korean coast in 1875, it was done with the expectation that the Korean shore batteries would fire on the Japanese ships. When the Koreans obliged, Japan landed a battalion of troops on Kanghua Island, and they threatened military action unless King Hojong signed the Kanghua Treaty with Japan in 1876. Though it is characterized as a treaty of amity, and begins, The governments of Japan and Chosun, being desirous to resume the amicable relations that of yore existed between them, and to promote the friendly feelings of both nations to a still firmer basis, have for this purpose appointed their plenipotentiaries, This was basically gunboat diplomacy on the Western model. It was an unequal treaty. It was the bitter pill of the sort that Japan had recently been forced to swallow itself. In other words, Japan was able to replicate vis-a-vis Korea the unequal international law and status hierarchies perpetrated theretofore upon the world more or less exclusively by the Western powers, including in trading and residence rights, extraterritoriality, etc., The preamble to the Kanwha Treaty, which I quoted a moment ago, is actually of critical importance. Recognition of Korea as a sovereign nation with equal standing to Japan and other states in an international order based at least nominally on treaties, etc., was an epochal departure from the world order of the Sinosphere, in which Korea was basically a satellite and tributary to China. It was uh, in a lower hierarchical position. The concept of an international community of equal and sovereign nations was alien to the East Asian order, as Koreans had always interpreted it. And even though the other provisions of the treaty were manifestly unfavorable to Korea, as were those of a superseding trade agreement signed months later, by catapulting the Herbert Kingdom into a global world order that would brook no isolationism and no seclusion, at least at the rhetorical level this marked a very interesting turning point in Korean history. This is made even more clear in Article 1 of the treaty, which reads, Choson, as an independent state, enjoys the same sovereign rights as Japan. Japan absolutely insisted on this provision because it meant that Choson was no longer subject to China's traditional suzerainty claims. Despite this, and despite the fact that China was militarily too weak to maintain its tributary control over Korea by force, it was able to maintain some weakening vestige of political control over the peninsula, until the Sino-Japanese War of 1894. Korea remained for the time largely, and unfortunately, dependent on China for guidance. And this, of course, makes sense, given the enormous influence and stature that China had wielded historically. But as China failed to deal effectively with the challenges posed by the uh, Euro-American incursion, following China probably contributed to Korea's difficulties in adapting as well. In the interim between the Kanhua Treaty and the Sino-Japanese War, an interim of about two decades, Kojong undertook a number of steps to promote reform and self-strengthening, though he was constantly hounded and hampered by conservative opposition. Perhaps surprisingly, uh, he did so at the advice of Li Hongzhang and Huang Jinshen, the uh, Chinese counselor uh, stationed in the country's Tokyo legation, who proposed a national strategy for Korea's future that involved close alliances with China, Japan, and the United States. Li, a striking feature, a, uh, excuse me, a striking figure especially for his time, stood at well over 180 centimeters or about six feet and was remarkable for his long, wispy beard. He had played a key role in putting down the Taiping Rebellion and had become one of China's most important advocates of an instrumentalist self-strengthening movement that sought to adopt and adapt the best of Western culture, technology, etc., to fortify China against the Atlantic powers and against revolution. As he put it, let us use the foreigner, but do not let him use us. In 1879, he was appointed governor of the Beijing area, a testament to his tremendous standing in the eyes of the court. Kojong was receptive to the advice of the great Chinese statesman, which was adopted into Korean as Eastern Ways and Western Means, or Eastern Ways and Western Technology. Under this reformist banner, in 1880, the king established diplomatic relations with the United States. Two years later, the nation signed the Korean-American Treaty of Amity and Commerce, which is also known by the longer name, the Treaty of Peace, Amity, Commerce, and Navigation between the United States of America and the Kingdom of Korea. Frankly, this was a more Korea-friendly agreement than the Konghua bargain struck at gunpoint with the Japanese, and better than most of the contemporary treaties being forced upon weaker states by the predatory Atlantic powers at the time. It provided for the protection of shipwrecked American sailors, the securing of coal supplies for American US, uh, for, excuse me, American vessels entering Tulson, trading rights in selected Joseon ports, the exchange of diplomatic representatives, etc., it also granted the Americans extraterritoriality and most favored nation status in Chosong. In return for these benefits, the U.S. Ingre- agreed not to import opium or arms into Chosong. This U.S. Korean treaty was soon followed by agreements with Great Britain, with Germany in 1883, Italy and Russia in 1884, France in 1886, and thereafter others including Australia, Belgium, and Denmark. Kojong sent a mission to Japan to learn about its modernization successes. He also sent one to China to study military science. Of the dozen officials who went to Japan for this 10-week observation tour, two remained on as students, and they reported back to the court regularly on information that was seen as useful, beneficial. A larger group of 40 or so students and artisans was dispatched to China. Under considerable pressure from Japan, Kojong opened two additional ports, in 1881, he then set up an office for management of state affairs to handle diplomacy, trade with foreign states, and military reform. He welcomed the first Japanese ambassador that year. Huang Zunchen's strategy for Korea was distributed at the king's orders to explain and justify his quote-unquote enlightenment policies, but it was met with deep-rooted recalcitrance amongst the Yangban and the Confucian literati. A flood of protests reached the king, but more importantly his father, the deposed Taewongun, who now sided with the literati against his son and led a plot to overthrow the king and abolish the state affairs office. This September 1881 coup attempt would have removed the Taewongun's nemesis, Queen Min, and placed his eldest and, frankly, uh, in the terms of the time, illegitimate son on the throne. The plot was foiled and the would-be usurper king was put to death along with co-conspirators, though not with the Taewongun. And the Teowongun lived to be involved in another uh, uprising in the following year. That summer, soldiers, justifiably angered by the government's failure to pay them for more than a year, were joined by Seoul slum slum residents in killing the military paymaster and burning the Japanese legation. They blamed the queen in part, too, though both she and the Japanese ambassador managed to escape. In part because of their anti-queen stance, the rebel soldiers were supported by the Teowongun, who momentarily was able to claw back some power to slow down his son's reforms. China intervened, sending 4,500 or so troops and three warships to assist the government in restoring order. For good measure, they also abducted the regent and shut him away in Tianjin, where he could make no more trouble. Invited to what was supposed to be an amicable meeting, the Taewongen found himself hustled onto a Chinese ship, whisked away, and kept under close surveillance for three years. Kidnapping the de facto head of state and the king's father was unprecedented. It marked a departure from the Chinese tradition of non-interference in Korean affairs, and it transformed China's relations with Korea to something similar to that enjoyed by Western imperialists. For the first time, China negotiated a commercial treaty with Korea that provided privileges to Chinese merchants trading in Korea that were denied to other states. And for good measure, the Chinese restored the king, the queen, and her relatives to power, and allowed them to repress the taewon supporters. China also continued this variety of strong-arm meddling in Korean affairs even after the settlement of this incident. Japan also dispatched troops to Korea at this time, 1,500 soldiers, and these soldiers demanded punishment for those who had burned down the Japanese diplomatic quarters and nearly killed the ambassador. The ensuing settlement, which was supported by China, was harsh to Korea, Requiring significant reparations and apologies, and among other things, allowing the Japanese to permanently station military forces at the embassy in Seoul. The presence of opposing military forces backing opposing agendas for Korea's future, in other words, the Chinese and Japanese, ratcheted up Sino Japanese tensions in and about the pinched Chosun Kingdom. To defuse the situation, China and Japan agreed that neither side would send additional troops to Korea without informing the other so that the military balance could be maintained. And an uneasy balance was barely maintained uh, by the rival pro-China and pro-Japan factions, the former represented by the Queen, her family, and other prominent quote-unquote conservative figures, the latter by the King and his quote-unquote progressive supporters. In contrast to the xenophobic conservatives associated with the Tewongun, and the gradualists around Queen Min who took a pro-China stance, the king was generally in favor of following Japan's lead in modernizing for national strength. Calling for social equality, the appointment of men with talent and ability, centralized administration, and enlightenment, Kojong instituted a number of reforms in 1883. These included a modern post office, the Ministry of Culture and Information, the publication of the first newspaper. Korea also sent students to study military and technical subjects in Japan and Kojong continued to solicit and push for reforms, but the effect was minimal, and in the end was truncated by war. In the event, the pro-Japanese progressives went too far and precipitated a war in which they did not represent, but rather kidnapped the game. They organized a coup to seize power, but with no support inside Korea, the leader convinced the Japanese ambassador to let him use legation guards, in other words, Japanese guards. Kim had recently retu- uh, Kim Kim Hokyun the leader of the uh, coup had recently returned from Japan where he had become a zealous proponent of Japanese style modernization as the only possible future for Korea he and his co-conspirators intended to assassinate members of the queen's fashion and blame the chinese the coup leaders seized the palace they held king kohlson captive and they began rooting out pro china conservatives using the subtle mechanism of executions china reacted swiftly led by yuan shikai the chinese legation guards and korean soldiers attacked the palace killed a half dozen leaders and drove out the rest of the plotters along with the japanese ambassador and his entourage they drove them out of the country once again china's intervention restored the political situation to the status quo ante and scotched the chance for significant reform in the boot in in the in the process this was a huge blow to ko reform efforts, as he had to abnegate even those policies he supported after they were tainted by the traitorous coup attempt. Shockingly, the Japanese once again managed to extract reparations from Korea, despite the ambassador's role in the coup attempt. The resulting treaty of 1885 required an official apology and reparations for damages to the legation, and allowed an increase in the Japanese legation guard to a thousand men. In the decade that followed the failed coup, The Chinese exercised considerable influence in Korea, so much so that it is sometimes called the Chinese Decade. From 1884 to 1894, Japan acquiesced in China's domination of Korea, biding its time politically, even as Japanese merchants developed increasingly strong commercial ties to the peninsula, a major source of agricultural produce for Japan, and even as anxiety levels in Tokyo rose over the increasingly plausible risk that Korea would completely collapse and be annexed by China, or perhaps by Russia. Meanwhile, Yuan Shikai unofficially oversaw Korea's domestic affairs, sitting at King Kojong's side, preventing him from doing anything that might interfere with China's control over Korea, and lead to national independence. This kind of interference was a marked departure, as I've noted, from centuries of precedent. Not since the Mongols ruled China as the Yuan dynasty in the 14th century had it so directly interfered in Korean affairs. And while China's supervision certainly had some positive benefits for Korea. As Michael Seth argued, overall, the attempt by Beijing to put Korea firmly under its guidance limited Korea's contact with the outside world, hindered reform efforts, weakened the position of reformers, and in general contributed to the country's lack of preparedness for the challenges to its sovereignty. So we're going to talk next about the uh, 1890s and the Tonghak Rebellion and Sino-Japanese War as the japanese demand for korean rice grew profits from the increase in prices went to middlemen not to producers in other words to farmers japanese fishery companies plied korean coastal waters japanese ships took over korea's carrying trade then droughts occurred in 1876 to 1877 and again throughout the 1880s you can recall from the previous lecture the famines in northeast china that were devastating enough to quote draw tears from iron This reduced tax revenues, but state expenditures had risen with the payment of indemnities to foreigners and the need to finance modern institutions such as the army. Desperate for income, the government allowed tax collectors ever greater leeway in oppressing the peasants. This exacerbated existing economic difficulties and contributed to the Tonghak Rebellion, which is the largest rebellion in Korean history. It began in 1894. And it was also the primary precipitating event of the first Sino-Japanese War of 1894-1895. There were, however, some other factors, including xenophobia, uh, resentment against the presence of foreigners, including the Japanese, the rejection of Christianity, general dissatisfaction with peasant life in Korea under often corrupt, inept government, at least and, and especially at the local levels. Local officials often embezzled tax revenues even as taxes went up to support enlightenment projects by the king, and this was made worse by Japanese indemnities and commercial interests. As the country opened to foreign trade and the peasants' plight deepened, the popular nationalistic and religious Tonghak movement gained wide support in the farmlands. By 1893, displeasure with continual persecution of the church and the defamation of its founder was linked to the peasant unrest over the new taxes local grievances with corrupt officials resentment at the japanese merchants and anxiety over the growing foreign presence in the country members called for the punishment of corrupt officials and the expulsion of japanese and westerners from korea the following spring protests became violent in the chola region korea's granary Exploitation by corrupt Korean officials, one in particular who even illegally taxed irrigation water, and the increasing power of Japanese merchants had been particularly harsh here. When an initial crack government force proved completely incapable of putting down this uprising, and the Tonghak continued expanding northward, King Kojong panicked. He asked China for help in putting down the rebels. Well, this made sense for him, but specifically it it controverted the agreement between China and Japan, which had been made a decade earlier, to draw out from to draw down from the peninsula. In other words, to remove all troops and to notify the other party in advance of sending any troops back into Korea for any reason. So, when China failed to do this, Japan took it as an opportunity to force a war on China, uh, which it won quite handily. With that victory, Japan established in practical terms hegemony over the Korean peninsula, uh, which eventually led to the annexation in 1910. And we're going to discuss the war in more detail in a a future lecture, as well as, of course, the period uh, of Korea's colonization. Uh, For now, just a couple things that are directly relevant to the story of changes here in the uh, last decade of the 19th century in Korea. During the war, a Japanese-educated and supported cabinet uh, now set about reforming Korea, uh, which aroused opposition and had only mixed results. The Tonghak rose again, unsuccessfully again, and Kojong continued for a short time to obstruct. The The new cabinet was launched by men who had studied abroad and hoped to emulate Meiji Japan. Their reform program aimed at remaking government and society rationalizing the bureaucracy, abolishing sinecures, establishing a regular budget and a uniform currency, ending the king's control over the exchequer, creating a new judicial structure with professional judges and a modern police and military, initiating a modern educational system through high school for both sexes, compulsory through primary school, and expanding railroads and telephone lines. The government abolished slavery. It promised universal health care. It put an end to civil service examinations based on Confucian classics. Status distinctions between yangban and commoners, economic controls, and the mistreatment of wives were also uh, to be put to an end. It promoted national identity through the use of hangul on government documents and teaching Korean, not Chinese, history in the new schools. The reform cabinet lasted 16 months, in other words, until the end of the war. The triple intervention in April, 1895, triple because it was by Russia, France, and Germany, forced Japan to give up its territorial gains following the Sino-Japanese War. And this meant that Japan had to retreat from Korea as well. After this, the reform cabinet fell into some ignominy, uh, the details of which we can skip, except to say that the end of that cabinet was caused by, and, uh, and also signaled, continued resistance to reform. Nevertheless, I think it's worth noting that in sort of in conclusion here, that Korea had changed in some important ways during the 19th century. By 1895, it had ended its tributary relationship with China. Its diplomacy rested on treaties, and it had started to build a modern state. The country's most successful reforms dovetailed with the desires of men long suppressed by the Yangban, who had been unable to achieve upward mobility through education and government service. On the other hand, reforms had been mostly piecemeal and ineffective in many ways. And factionalism, in other words, the Yangban tendency to look out for their own class interests, uh, even within the Yangban, uh, and a general resistance to change signaled potential trouble for Korea ahead. More than that, though the nation had exited its tributary relationship with China, in a sense it had merely traded China for Japan which then went on to assert political and economic prerogatives in the peninsula with increasing vehemence in the following years.